This is a HeadGum Podcast. Oh, hey. I am Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox, and welcome to Good One, a podcast in which a comedian, writer, director, and what have you, comes on to play and discuss one of their jokes. Now for something different. Well, we still have a comedian and a joke, but that's not it. Max Silvestri has a joke in his episode of Netflix's comedy lineup that I knew I wanted to do an episode about ever since I saw him do it live for the first time. It's a hilarious, lovingly told story about a trip his long-term partner, writer Leah Beckman, took with her friends. I've always been curious how couples, in which one member is a comedian, navigates what of the other person's life is okay to talk about on stage. Added to the mix here, before Leah started writing for television, she was a journalist who, as we talk about in this episode, would write about Max. So we get into it. Honestly, it's all very sweet, funny, charming. Speaking of which, first, here's Max telling the story on stage, and then Leah and Max telling the story behind the story. I think the truth is I just wish I could only hang with women. Like, I'm so jealous of my girlfriend's lady friends. Like, they have the most incredible relationship. They talk about everything. They're so open. I feel like female friendships are like homeschool kids. No boundaries. <laughs> you know, I want that. <laughs> to tell a story that is totally true to explain this, my girlfriend went away for a long weekend with three lady friends she's known since college. And they got a cabin in the woods out in the middle of nowhere. And she came back and she was like, oh, that weekend was unbelievable. And I was like, what did you guys do? There was like nothing in the town, no bars, no Wi-Fi at the house. And she's like, what? We just talked and laughed and cried and cooked and shared. Oh, it was the best. But actually the best part of the weekend was on Saturday, all four of us took a little bit of mushrooms. <laughs> it's like, okay, great. She's like, no, 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 we didn't take a lot. It was just right. And we like went outside and the sun was like warming our hair. And we laid in the fields and like the grass was like tickling our thighs because there were no neighbors around the house. So the whole day we could just wear t-shirts with no pants or underwear. I was like, well, oh yeah, because that's a very normal friend outfit for sure. <laughs> Guys are the same way, you know. As soon as ladies are out of the picture, we're like, finally, <laughs> we can be ourselves and just Winnie the Pooh it. Ah. So nice to hang with the fellas, throw on a chunky turtleneck sweater with nothing below the belt. Just really let the machinery breathe, you know? Dry out the old gearbox. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know how cars or penises work. <laughs> Is it better if they're wet or dry? You tell me. I actually have no idea. Uh. But yeah, so she and her friends are a little high on mushrooms in the field, and she's like, so we're being silly and talking, and like somehow we figured out, and this is embarrassing to admit, that even though all four of us have been friends for over 10 years and seen each other naked hundreds of times, we realized that none of us knew what any of the other girls' buttholes look like. I was like, what? How could you not? talking about it, we also realized, like, wait, I don't think I've ever seen my own butthole. None of us had. So we just had this classic girls' afternoon where what we did to solve that problem there in the field is we just took turns one at a time spreading each other's cheeks apart, and we described our buttholes to one another. And it was actually beautiful, because, like, I love my friends, and I trust them. Rita told me that mine looks like a sunflower about to sneeze. And I was like, oh! <laughs> Womanhood, but also that image. 
really, I was just jealous when she told me that because I thought about it and I was like, I don't think I can name a single friend of mine that would walk me through what my asshole looks like <laughs> outdoors. I mean, I definitely have an indoor friend. We all do. We all have at least one, sir. But, you know, I, I want someone to do it under the Tuscan sun. <laughs> You know, I realized that saying all those jokes in a row that the moral of them is maybe that I'm gay and my girlfriend's a lesbian and we're just not dealing with it. But uh, what are you gonna do, you know? <laughs> Six and a half years, we have a dog. <laughs> I am here with the person who you just heard telling that story, Max Silvestri, and the person from the story, Leah Beckman. Welcome both of you. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having us. Thanks. This is immediately much more like marriage counseling than I expected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. So I want to talk a little about this story, but before that, I want to back up uh, just to provide some context of your careers and your relationship. Uh, when and how did you first meet? We have been together now just about seven years as we record this. I think our first date was this week, roughly seven years ago. We met on the subway in New York. Wow. Yeah. Yep, we want- met on the subway. Uh, Max was rude to me. That's the part that's disputed. Yes. He was just sort of caught off guard. I had headphones in. She came over and said like she'd seen Big Terrific once or twice and just wanted to say like that was a very funny very show. Very bold, embarrassing move. That is also like totally out of character for me, not something I've done since. Uh, and very <laughs> out of character for me to receive. Yes. Uh, just to have a, uh, a beautiful young woman walk up and be like, hey, you know, you're like really kind of shaggy alt comedy showcase. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, and I sort of was polite for a minute or two and put my headphones back in. It was like psycho kind of. And then I sort of backed up down the subway track and then we got into the same car on in through different doors. And then he got off, to, I think, to go to Big Terrific. Yes. <laughs> and then like waved through the doors and I was just like, oh my God, I'm Like never... we didn't continue our conversation yeah. and kind of natural human, like we only have nine minutes, but like anyway, <laughs> thanks for, you know. Um, and then we re-met a month later on the subway and this time I was again on the she subway. walked past me and this time I did not screw it up but the best part of the story yes is well you know we 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 Facebook message for a bit I finally asked her for a date a few weeks later um, and then I was she was like you didn't like me when we met you were like very rude and I was like I was not rude I was like being careful and nervous and polite um, but I had put up a Craigslist misconnection yeah baby misconnection so by that point uh, Max you were a fully functioning uh, member of the New York comedy scene. Thank you. Uh, but when you're starting dating Leah, what was your relationship to live comedy? It's kind of what it is now, which is only shows that Max does, I guess. <laughs> like, I didn't, I think I had, I don't even know how I went to, oh my gosh, I know what it was. I weirdly was doing some like freelance, truly like $25 an article for this weird magazine in San Francisco called Soma that is mm-hmm. also like a brand of sleeping pill. You all, you had to pitch everything. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'll I'll pitch that I'm going to go see this show. And then Max was there. And I, I thought it was so funny. And then I went back another time, like dragging different friends. Leah and I like still will have like, if I'm doing like just a spot to work out something, she'll be like, you have a show? Like, I'm, I'm going to try to come. I didn't know you had a show tonight. And I still, it's seven years in, I'm like, don't, not don't come, but I'm like, I, I, I feel like I got a very good piece of advice when I was starting in Boston. Um, one of the Walsh brothers, who was, uh, they were like two very influential guys in the alt comedy scene. They're now in LA, but they were like, I dissuade my partner from coming as much as possible because I don't want her to hate comedy. I want her to like, yeah. like it when it's good and get her to come to the things that are fun. I don't want her to just be like, it's a nightmare waiting in the wings as you just like pace and yeah. have like anxiety farts and just like don't listen to me and just nod while you like mouth punchlines that you're working like, I'm a good time gal, you know, <laughs> I love funny stuff, but I just like, <laughs> I was like, oh, comedy like capital C is bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, I mean, there's a, a certain reputation. I, there's It has a little bit of media, but comedy is famously terrible to the girlfriends and boyfriends of comedians. Yeah. Is, you know, Max came up in a nicer scene, but was that also your experience? No, I mean, definitely not. And all like all of Max's friends are now my dearest friends. And I mean, um, you know, also like it's not like Max is in a sort of like comedy cellar. We're all like yeah. shitting on each other. Like they're famously some of the nicest gent- gentlest. I mean, Gabe I came Lehman up and- at the helium yeah. Jersey <laughs> just doing three ways in hotel rooms with other like road guys. Yeah. Uh, no, like I though. I, I mean, I do. I feel like even still um, how another comedian treats your partner is like the quickest way to for me yeah. to judge them to like get the real report on like oh if they're like unable to make eye contact yeah. with you when I introduce them in a social setting. But it is also I mean the the first people that I knew were like Gabe Liebman and Jenny Slate. I mean Gabe is gay, Jenny is a woman, they're both like Jews. It's just like a very <laughs> comfortable energy for me that I was like these are instantly my best friends also and it it just kind of wasn't the same vibe, but that is a true thing. I mean, they're my friends took you're to, just ignored a yeah, lot, I think. Yeah. yeah. And my friends took to Leah like so quickly such that I don't they're I think they're most for the most part closer friends with you than they are with me right now. <laughs> Early in your relationship, did you have a feeling about using the other person in your work? Did you have conversations about it? I don't think I used to use that term Leah in my work very often at the beginning. Um, I mean, I've always had sort of like a relationship to like, I tell truth things. I'm not like a lie comic with a lie persona that just tells one-liners that the audience knows, well, this is suited to this situation. You just recently broke up. I think because so much of my comedy came out of this very shaggy personal hosting situation at Big Terrific with a lot of repeat guests that I never like. I was never misleading them for the purposes of a joke. Um, And I always was like, well, I I will talk a lot about myself, but actually my parents and actual people in my life are segmented off in a safe way. I think this story might have been like the first time that I like really used. I will say the earliest example I could find of one of you mentioning the other work was an article you oh, wrote. God. As soon as you asked this question, I was like, Jesus Christ, I hope we don't have to talk about this. We and- don't have to talk about it a lot, <laughs> no, we but can. It's okay. I was just sort of like, oh, I wonder if he's, she's ever mentioned. And then I found the article for The Cut in 2012. Do <laughs> yeah. you remember the article? Do you remember? Max, do you remember the article? I do remember the article, <laughs> yeah. I, re- I honestly, no offense to The Cut, love you. Beautiful work. I truly regret this article more than anything. <laughs> One of them, like, more than anything I've <laughs> How deep did you have to Google to find it? <laughs> Ultimately, because you have not written so much. If you just search your name and byline, you're like, okay, well, and then she, yeah. you want to run so many things for the cut. And it's the first thing. Yeah. Which was like pretty early in the cut's existence. I guess, should I yeah. say what it is? I um, I was, it was right when the cut launched um, and Maureen O'Connor was launching and she, she, I'm pretty sure she assigned to me, but I don't know why it would have been me specifically. I don't have like a real writing about sex vibe, but I, it was testing out a fake hymen that you could buy like on the black market, I think in China. And I, Max and I had also just started dating and I was like, would you, would you do this? And I like fully in placed inside my vagina a fake hymen and then we had sex and I wrote about it. It's like the grossest thing. And the premise of the, the de- device, it's for, it's for cultures uh, where perhaps virginity and um, wedding night 
you know, uh, maiden <laughs> taking or whatever is like a, th- a thing that's important. So the idea was it was like it basically was like a small piece of plastic with like a ketchup packet on yeah, it. So it was like to trick, you know, drunk dominant men or whatever into <laughs> thinking that like I did it. I did it. I I don't know anything about this, uh, but I'm, really I've got to go wash my penis. Yeah, or when whatever. all it really did is ruin your bath mats. Like yeah. it's <laughs> we had sex on the floor of my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> but it really like the main regret is not writing about my sex life or whatever. It was mostly, it is a fascinating thing that I just kind of like tossed offhand, like yeah. the implications of it that I just did not refuse to go deeper. And now it's well, but they weren't writing you, like they weren't asking you to write like a deep thing no, about know, like, what does yeah. it mean in a patriarchal culture? But <laughs> still, it, what does it mean? Yeah. I am the first one. You're my muse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for yeah. fucking me with a piece of plastic yeah. or whatever. <laughs> Do you have, uh, Max, do you have any memory of how it felt to be the boyfriend in someone else's story? I mean, obviously, I was, you know, furious to not, to not have more control over it. Uh, <laughs> I was like, let me tell my version. I want to stomp this down. No, I mean, I, you know, uh, I feel lucky that I've never, like, felt like... I, I was neither embarrassed nor jealous of just being a passive player yeah. in the story. I certainly didn't feel like, oh, this puts me in a weird light where it's like, mm, shows the world I'm a, I mean, to be honest, shows the world I'm a guy that has sex. So, you know, <laughs> no big virgin. deal. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah. Really cool. The only mention I could think of where you mention a girlfriend is super in passing in the Glenn Rice joke. Yes. Where you say, I was like, well, what kind of Red Bull are we talking about? Is it like one of the smaller ones where you're like, oh, I overslept and I want to be peppy for this job interview kind of Red Bull? <laughs> or are we talking about the taller, like I was doing cocaine until nine in the morning and now I've got to spend all day at the MoMA with my girlfriend's parents kind of Red Bull? <laughs> yes, oh, yes. Yeah. And even that was like kind of a figurative, I don't think I ever brought a girlfriend's parents to the moment. I mean, I worked at the yeah, moment. No, no. That is certainly something <laughs> yes. I could have done, but like that was before my time. Before your time, but also like I, I, I think I was always like, and also about parents, about girlfriends, about people that weren't me in my life. It's like I spoke figuratively about yeah. it. Just not that I wasn't drawing on like truthful things. I just never wanted to be like, well, this happened, and that they have to deal with hearing about that. I mean, it just took a while to feel like I was allowed to take yeah. those things from people. Because I was I was listening to interviews with you from around when your album came out. Yeah. And you're talking about you tell stories and your idea of how comedy would work was you tell a true story and then at the end just lie at the end. De- yeah, definitely at the beginning, <laughs> yes. I now And now it's just I tell a story that doesn't matter, but uh, go on a lot of digressions along the way, that, you know, but at least keep the real story true. So around when that... King Piglet came out, which is your first album, yes. which is your only album, which is about 10 years into doing comedy for you. After that came out, where you sort of were anew, were you deliberate about uh, the comedy you wanted to start making? Because King Piglet was the first album and had a mixture of like early jokes that had been polished to not feel like a 22-year-old writing them, and then newer stuff, my relationship with editing was not particularly defined then. You know, like a special thing came on when it came along when it did and asked me to do an album and I certainly had done an hour of material many times but I like something about it being audio didn't make me get stressed about the like I don't know the 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 perfection of the material the like statement of the the hour I mean this was like pre one hour boom yeah um so there was less of like well how does this fit in with the sort of like new hour that people are doing. It was just like, well, this is most of the material that I have 
right now. And, and a special thing really kept being insistent about not being precious about how they recorded it. So it was just like, no, this is just a document of that show then. Don't feel yeah. like this. So I, I think I felt afterward of like, okay, a lot of these bits just like weren't finished being written. They were finished being written to the point that I like liked a part of them enough that like, and they did well enough that I could just yeah. put a pin in it. But I think... You know, I took a little space from stand-up after that for a bit. And then when I started touring again and and thinking more critically about it, watching more stand-up, it was like, well, I, you know, I I need to outgrow the, like, I'm tickled by just writing something I find surprising and actually, like, engage a little bit more with um, why an audience would want to care about it. I don't think I ever thought about why an audience would want to hear this joke or would listen to the end of it. I was just like, if I speak quickly enough and yell enough funny things that they're not going to have a choice, you know, like I'm just going to slam them. And um, I think, I mean, touring with John uh, Mulaney certainly helped after, but the idea of like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with my own ability to like write or surprise people, but I need to come meet them a little bit, a little bit along the way. We'll be right back with more Max and Leah after this word from our sponsor. Hi, me again, but my voice is a little lower this time because I'm recording an ad. This ad is for Vulture Festival LA, coming to the Hollywood Roosevelt November 17th and 18th. You know Vulture Festival. Man, it is the best. 48 hours of pop culture events and panels and weird things the writers here came up with. And you know we got comedy. For fans of this podcast, we'll have a live episode of, uh, you know, this podcast. On Sunday, I'll be sitting down with Lil Rel, who most people know from Get Out, but is also an insanely funny stand-up in his own right. I am super, super excited. But that's not even close to it. We also have Takes Breath, a table read of Big Mouth in which Nick Kroll will voice all the parts. Casey Wilson and Adam Pally literally doing whatever they want. Fred Armisen moderating the world premiere of The Other Two, the new sitcom from beloved SNL writers Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider. And that's just Saturday. Sunday we have... Bo Burnham, Jim Carrey, Rachel Bloom, a Good Place panel. The LA premiere of the John Mulaney penned Documentary Now parody of the iconic documentary about the making of the cast recording of Company. And something Thomas Milledge is calling the Extreme Gaming Championship. For listeners of the podcast, we're offering a discount of 20% off if you use the code GOOD120. That's G-O-O-D-O-N-E, the number two, the number zero. Is zero a number, technically? Digit? That's G-O-O-D-O-N-E, the number two, the number zero. So that's good one twenty or goo done two zero. Vulture Festival LA, Hollywood Roosevelt, November 17th, November 18th, good one twenty. Now back to me. And we're back with Leah and Max. Uh so we are at the cabin store. Yeah. <laughs> we'll start with Leah, the person who lived this truthfully. Uh, when did this happen? It was June 2014, and uh, it was in uh, Margaretville, New York. I'm like ready with those facts because I just went to confirm and even searched through my email and found a like very, hey, ladies, like it, it said something like uh, ready for our boomers, which is what we call mushrooms um, <laughs> in Margaritaville. So was the occasion of the weekend was let's do mushrooms in a week for a weekend and hang yeah. out with yes actually <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean we weren't um it was it was both like be outside together somewhere beautiful in the summer the best time that there is in New York so what happened <laughs> and, uh, and and what did you tell Max 
Max, you can later say what went to your brain. Sure, sure. Yeah. So just start to finish. Yeah. All right. One of my friends told me that she thinks the way this all started is that we were, full, first of all, fully naked running around. And then um, she But you don't was, know why. You just were. We just felt, I it's mean. beautiful. Why you were in the it's middle beautiful. of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, you're like running through the grass yeah. and we're naked and it's so fun. And so my one friend was laying down on her stomach and she said that it started with me where I just came up behind her and was like <laughs> trying to open her butt. I was like, I want to see. I've never seen a butthole. I've never seen your butt. And then and then we were just doing downward facing dog and how good that felt and then looking at each other's. I also, we didn't describe them. That's Ma- Max's beautiful poetry. We did not describe them like that. Well, there's also um, the, the better end to the, and that's not the end of the story, but the Find, like so the the true the best part is that in the morning when we woke up I mean we had been maybe this is what you're thinking about but we'd been running around fully naked and uh, thinking we were in the nowhere. middle of nowhere there was like this gorgeous tree and we're running around I mean we've been naked for like 12 hours and uh, in the morning we woke up and the house is fully on the street like there are cars <laughs> driving through and also like a lot of cars we i mean it was like being on the taconic or whatever you're yeah. just like right off the thing and um almost like no break in the cars i mean i would say no less than 50 people saw us <laughs> frolicking around so then walk me through the steps of hearing that and then digesting it and be like i need to sure. go on stage with it you know uh, i mean so this was like the tail end of Weekly Big Terrifics, I believe. Um, so a lot of times, like, I would just kind of go on with a vague premise or th- a thing I wanted to talk about. And, like, I wouldn't – I was so uh, cocky and casual with that crowd that I never felt like, well, I'm only going to bring up something I've kind of written some mm-hmm. notes on or I should know where I end or whatever the normal responsible writing process was. I was just like – I have I would write down a word and knew I had kind of a story. And I actually found – about an hour ago, like the voice memo mm-hmm. of the first set list I had that had mushrooms on it. It was about a month after this. And it was more about me wanting to do mushrooms more. So there was like a joke about having had some bad experiences with mushrooms, like that it was the best, but also I've had some nightmare experiences with them. And I, I want to get more like open about that. And then there was the detail of like being jealous of not just Leah's experience, but that she has these friends that are so open about sharing that. And I, the quick version I told was like that it was just beautiful out and they were mostly naked all weekend and just like describing each other's bodies and or just being like, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. And I had an idea of like, I, I, can't, I, could, I don't have a group of guy friends where I could do that. And it was more of an act out about a bunch of bros yeah. having a weekend like that. So the weird riff about specifically being bottomless was more about guys being like oh bro like you know we got some chocolates and like you know just walking around bottomless and being like you know your your butthole like wow this is blood whatever it was like more an act out about the guy stuff and the the leah thing was meant to be a detail queuing up guys on a mushroom trip one listening now five four years later whatever i mean it was kind of the first it was the first time I was exploring the area like on stage of like my specific guy friend, female friend, like the jealousy, the not feeling comfortable in in groups of guy friends. It was like a bunch of friends had moved out of New York. I didn't quite have like a, like this guy group of friends anymore. So the joke was like the first time I was touching on this area that I, you know, explore a lot in my standup right now, but it was a story about me doing mushrooms and straight guys looking at each other's buttholes. But like, Big Terrific had a very female crowd, and I think a very like feminine 
crowd in general and and they responded to the sh- like Leah's mm-hmm. part of the story so strongly that to then take them away from it they were always like mad yeah. you know like coming back to me and imagining a bunch of dudes slapping each other on the back about their assholes was like well we were just living in a really blissful catskill space <laughs> like and, and like a lot of you know a, not all females but many females like that is a bit they will come up to me and be like you know, I met my best female friend like in the like spa at New York Sports Club. Like nudity and openness is a cherished thing among certain straight females more so than it is straight men. So I think I just started noticing that like, oh, what they like about this joke is not my lie. Mm-hmm. It's um the true part. So it started to be reframed of like building the act outs and the digressions into the story of Talia's story. I have people ask me about it all the time or even ask me a really kind of funny side effect has been people asking other friends of mine if they were the friends in it. But like, I think women really connect to it because, you know, if you're lucky, you have those types of female friendships where you're, it's not even about the nudity, obviously, you know, it's like about getting away and just being like (laughs) fucking loose for the weekend. (laughs) And like not having boundaries and like not having the judgment. Um, Yeah. You're, that story is like the first Velvet Underground concert that there were 14,000 buttholes there and they <laughs> yeah. all described mm-hmm. it to their friends. It's Am definitely I nailing that? More women will connect to this now, yeah. Your job then became to, like, to capture the essence of this story. Listening to it again when, when it just had maybe like a 90-second, two-minute version, if that version of the story in the middle of the joke, there's no factual inaccuracies in that version. It's like it's she went away. They took mushrooms and just had the best time in nature, mostly naked, looking at each other and being like, I love you and being really open. There was no like taking liberties with that. I think as I did the joke on the road, like not like a big terrific, but other places and started to rearrange parts of it. It was kind of like, you know, it's like someone adapting a novel and not rereading it after they start working on it. Like it was obviously like it only exists because of Leah's story, but like. It never occurred to me to, like, fact-check elements along the way. It was like, I'm not doing anything purposefully deceitful, but I'm, like, taking the story and trying to figure out why I'm telling the story. It's one thing to just be like, my girlfriend had a really funny weekend, (laughs) but it was trying to fit it into this, you know, certain point of view of that chunk of my act that was developing about a jealousy of a celebration of something I was very much on the outside of, you know, like a group of female friends feeling no physical boundaries is or whatever. Is that tinkering done, like, on a page? Like, the only under- knowledge I have of your writing process is from your joke about masturbating to screaming children or to right. the <laughs> children. Right. Are, do you at any point type it out? Or is it, when you're saying rearranging, is it just sort of like a piece of paper and you're like... I mean, if I, t- if I wrote it out, I would probably be faster in developing things to getting them to the end of where I wanted. Like, I almost always write on stage... Joke lines will sometimes be written out. Like, I'm not someone that walks around and just is like, that's the wording of the final joke. Like, some comics are like that, where they're doing the, like, they're imagining the page and saying it out loud under their breath and figuring out the perfect word form. I think that was one that I just slowly, for me, a lot of times for stand-up writing specifically, not ever having a textual source to it helps the writing, even if it slows it down. Like, I'm a very visual person, um, so when I write something on a page, I have trouble not looking at the page every time I say it out loud. And it's not about memorization. It's just like I now will see it 
written on a page forever. I'll see it in paragraph form where I'm like, this is the next chunk, whatever. So that joke was always just mushrooms on the set list and sort of slowly evolved of like trying lines elsewhere until it finally had what felt like an ending. And, you know, so much of like my long story set pieces are about rhythm and energy where it's like I could keep making them longer and could keep making chunks that I think are high energy and fun. But at a certain point, an audience can only listen to a story about an asshole for like so long. And actually I was, when I was on tour with John, I sometimes would specifically do that joke, which has grown to maybe being six or seven minutes on the road, if not longer with a long story about um, shooting gasoline at my but oh, when yeah. I was uh, like, that's a little more polished uh, of a set piece now. But I would do them both back to back with very little setup between just to be like, it'd be fun. And I would talk to the audience about it. Of, like, you just listen to maybe 16 minutes of me talk about my girlfriend's butthole and then my butthole back to back. So, yeah, it, it, it never and it wasn't until Leah came and saw it, perhaps, you know, a year into it being on the road that she like offered feedback and I started being like, okay, like how do I add that back in? I want to get to that moment, but two quick questions was, did did you ever try it with the word asshole instead of butthole? I talk about things that are like kind of raunchy, but I like always am trying to do them in not a dirty way. Like people are going to be like, oh my God, you're talking about that. But I never want people to feel like, I don't know, that they're watching something filthy. Like there's a positivity that I'm trying to keep to it. That is obviously tricky to do because I'm talking about buttholes for 15 minutes. But uh, I think I tried it a few times and there was something that didn't quite, like I was taking such liberties with my girlfriend and her female friends being naked and I'm sharing the story that to say asshole suddenly felt like, it crossed the line of intimacy or eroticism or something that was like, if they were just like the grass tickling their thigh and then they all started yeah, plus staring into each other's assholes, <laughs> it felt like <laughs> I didn't like saying it. And yeah. I could also feel the audience be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> there was something about buttholes that was like more like, I don't know, cherubic and just like yeah. <laughs> a frolicking that I, you know, I wanted to maintain the innocence because it was not a story about like, did, did you, know, you have your lesbian experience? Did you have a, a variety of versions of what became Sunflower About to Sneeze? No, like that was a riff I did once at a show because there was no part where I repeated how the girls described. I mean, again, because that was kind of built out of me talking about with my guy friends describing our butts when I went back to like, oh, this is about imagine what it could be like to be that open where, you know, these girls are saying X, Y, Z to each other. I think I riffed that out of the blue once, like I'd never had a description of the butthole and like wrote it on stage in the moment and it got a laugh where I was like, I don't want to touch that. Like that's a thing (laughs) that I could sit and pitch on and just kind of keep turning over. But there was a something about, you know, the innocence but physically intimate thing like trying like about to sneeze like it just felt like the right thing of like this is a cartoon version of what happened but also is reminding you that the body is repulsive and expels things constantly it's like the um that like old fashioned thing where men think that at sleepovers women are pillow fighting and like rubbing each other in oil or whatever that's kind of what you're not that that's what this description was at all, but it was like, it's very clear that, that like, this isn't exactly what was happening. This was your, like, your, your vision of smart, funny women who, you know, love each other and who, you know, very, it's a subversion of that, of like, it's not 
it's I didn't even think of that. It's it's not like oh this is it's the opposite of like oh no, I don't want to picture them. I want exactly. to. I'm jealous of their friendship. Yes. Real, yes. Like that it's was always my worry gentle. about the bit that like you take one misstep towards sexualizing it and it is now that it's now objectifying these women and being like I'm so jealous I can't be there while they all like <laughs> get naked or why am I not there or why yeah. can't like women you know how women are where they get naked like that's why it's so it's kind of desexualized and sort of made more toilety or cartoony there's something about the slowness of how the joke builds Mm -hmm. which is so as a person who's seen you do comedy for so long and i and i looked up how i described your album which was very pretentious which was a labyrinth of tangents and parentheticals yeah um it is the op like there is that one tangent of uh once you get to the winnie Pooh part but like it it is you know, what is that shift, like if you can describe it structurally and, you know, what is, how does that come from stopping doing Big Terrific mm-hmm. and also specifically opening for John 150 times or whatever it was? I appreciate you noticing that. Uh, I mean, my early relationship to stand-up was always like a bit of frustration that other people's brains did not work mm-hmm. at the speed or in the same gear that mine did. Like I kind of felt like, well, everything else I do in comedy, whether it was hosting or writing or acting or something, required me to, like, I don't know, slow down and and follow a pattern and, like, satisfy certain needs, which is good, and that's great at boundaries, et cetera. But stand-up, I always, for a while, was like, I want to be as unencumbered as I feel like it. And, you know, this is... uh, People will like it or they won't. Um, I think being on the road with John both made me realize how little work it actually was to do that homework and get people, Mm -hmm. get the other 50% of the people that weren't willing to engage that quickly to like catch up and meet me halfway. Like it was not a total, I'm throwing my principles and I'm just dumbing this down. It was actually like, no, you just need to make sure they understand what you're feeling about the story, Mm -hmm. that they have all the details, that they can hear everything. And it was also a bit of a physical physics thing. I mean, it was playing very big venues with John. So, you know, I I remember before this tour, I had opened for somebody at like University of Maryland at 5,000 seat like basketball gym. And I was like, this is an issue of these these tags are not getting to the back of the arena before the people in the front are hearing the third tag or the fourth tag. There was just no way for the audience to do anything. I had to take people by the hand a little bit more because I was on tour for with John, like playing these spaces. So it slowed it down that way. But also watching how much rope John had to go weird if he just gave people the faintest of paths to follow. Yeah. You know, like he like I realized it just wasn't as much the homework was not as hard as I had been pretending it was. The idea of I'm not going to do anything to compromise this. I was like, oh, if I just if they know what kind of story they're hearing and they know what I feel about it and that they're not about to be hoodwinked into laughing at these women as being idiots or that it's like sexy or whatever, they'll go with me in a lot of different directions. I think um, sexy idiots. Sexy <laughs> idiots. Yeah, I, I, I think I just slowed it down so that people could um, could follow along. It's, it's also was interesting on tour to watch. Mulaney has a particularly, like, young, feminine, like, you know, a lot of allies, a lot of, like, it, it's, like, more women than men in the crowd. <laughs> yeah. Like, that that element never shook anyone. It, it would be one thing if I was working the story out on, the, like, a mixture of clubs and, you know, city and this and that. Like, that part always like maybe raised some dad eyebrows, but they were on board. <laughs> but depending on the type of town, the mushrooms part needed more mm-hmm. 
Like for me, the idea that they decided to take mushrooms is just like a detail you need. It's yeah. like, well, we decided yeah. to, you know, rent a zip car to get up there, <laughs> which is one of the easiest ways to get out of the city. Um, but uh, like that was always just like they decided to take sure. mushrooms and how big a laugh it would get. If it got a huge laugh, it meant that maybe the crowd needed to have mushrooms explained to it yeah. that this is not about like getting in a fist fight with your hair dryer because it's like, you know, yeah. knows what your dad did to you. It's it's just like, no, like uh, colors are brighter, you know, like shower curtains are a little funnier. Like this is, they're not having a crazy movie yeah. thing, mm -hmm. but a big laugh for mushrooms always meant that the crowd was like, oh boy, like <laughs> they must be up. lunatics. Yeah. And it had to be like, no, no, no. Yeah. So that was like the small townness or the like, I could tell if they were older or more male. Before all this, did you generally run bits about Leah, regardless if it was about her? I think I did. I mean, I never would just be like, oh, buckle up. You yeah. haven't been to Big Terrific in a couple five, weeks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I am just pulling you apart like a, a giant smoked pork butt. No, I, I didn't have a ton of... It would be like cute things in our relationship yeah. or it'd be about moving in together. There was... But he's saying running bits by... In general, like, would you run any bit? Like, oh, hey, I'm doing something about... I think it wouldn't be as clearly as, like, I'm thinking of doing this on stage, but, like, we would riff together and then... Yeah. And then you would be like, stage. yeah. What was it like when you saw it the first time? I mean, I, I, I knew it was coming, but I thought it was so fucking funny. I laughed so hard. I just like, because I mean, that's the other thing. Like we're, we're, we are aware people. I think part of the, the fun, I mean, we were laughing at ourselves yeah. as we were doing it. It's so funny what we're doing, crying, laughing, but then hearing um, someone else talk about it back to you, but then also watching other people laugh. It just makes it so, it's like, I don't know, having a little secret or something where you're like, I can't believe this is me and my friends. And now everybody's hearing it, but also like no one knows me and, this is like a story that happened to a stranger, but it's not a stranger. It's, you know, I I, I was talking about this with someone the other day. I, I like having done monologues at ASCAT at UCB a few times. Like, there's a certain type of craziness to like telling a story with no real beginning or end about, say, you know, your dad, like a thing he used to do to you when you were a kid, based off the prompt, and then you as the you know monologist just like sits down and then. Out of nowhere, like Zach Woods and Joe Wangard and John Gabris or yeah. whatever will start like playing your father and one of them will play you and will do this version that like they they will hew closely to the details you give. They obviously expand and change it. But I, I remember the first time I realized I told kind of an intimate story and then we're watching them you know, stomp around on it and Darcy come in as my mom and have this dynamic with, yeah. you know, you know, Zach Woods is my dad or whatever, where I was like, oh my God, this is so fun. This is like, I realized that they're not nailing it, but I don't feel like they're crossing about. It's so fun to like give these details yeah. to people and watch them run with the ball. Like I, I would never say that's the realer version, but I was like, oh, it's so fun. You took this and like, it's that. And also, it up. at least for me, I think like I was kind of proud of it too it's sort of like yeah I am freaking fun and so are my friends and <laughs> yeah. we love each other and that's cool <laughs> like you're happy the story was out there you're yeah, like yeah kind of yeah I mean I wasn't no part of me was ever embarrassed or weirded out or, or freak you know I mean it was it's something that I would tell anyone like in the I remember in the act I was, it didn't seem like you yelled at him about it but it was a he you play up a little bit like oh this is a talking to you got about like just so you know oh I I, I think I I didn't mean to. I think I tried to make it kind of more of a patient, you know. Just oh, like you, you're not on our level. Yeah, you like oh, you kind of yeah, yeah. like you've run away with the story That's in the so, wrong direction. A funny way to put it. But just to explain, 
we didn't actually do that the way you're getting a little wild and untrue with it. Um, but just I had seen it a bunch of times in the original version. Like I wasn't planning on seeing anything. I think you even asked me or somehow it came up where I was like, well, all right, if you want another real story. Yeah, I think yeah. I prompted you or um, someone in the group of friends after was like, that really happened. And I think you then you, you weren't you didn't come storming out of the gate being like you <laughs> were messing up, up a trash. lot of details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. So and then when you did it for Netflix, did you you don't remember? Did you do the longer version? They cut it out? Or no, you, no. I chose. I, I mean, I speak so quickly, and my jokes are so interconnected. And, and especially, I had two set piece bits that I was doing where it was like, "This is going to run." You know, they want me to do fourteen. This is going to run fourteen forty five. There's not a lot of like. Yeah. There wasn't room to be like, "Well, I'll give them twenty, and they'll figure it out." I didn't want them to figure it yeah. out. I didn't want them to have that power. So, um, I ended the bit where I originally ended it, which is just like, you know, a line that... I guess the end of the story is that... The moral of the story is I'm gay, my girlfriend's a lesbian. It's, you know, trying to create this, you know, uh, POV or whatever in the the Netflix thing, it has bits about like, uh, and straight guy friends make me nervous, but I'm jealous of my female, my girlfriend's female friends. And that is a little bit of the through line. And it is an exaggerated through line for the purposes of getting people to know me. I have gotten now two messages from trans people. One was just adding me and the other was a direct message being like, hey, this I don't mean anything by this, but a lot of the language you use in your set reminded me of thoughts I had pre-transition. And someone else, and, and both I were like- I very stupidly, by the way, my reaction was like, oh, you helped them. And he was like, no, no. idiot. And it was <laughs> so devoid of, it's, you're so, it's so uh, unusual that you get any kind of internet commentary yeah. that ha- is has no like barbs to it. One even was not to me. It was just like, did anyone else notice? Did anyone else hear some familiar, and anyone else in the trans community like kind of hear some familiar language in the opening of Max Silvestri's special? And then I also just got a direct message being like, hey, just wanted you to know that like I felt a lot of these- Things and I was like, man, it's so like nice that they that neither had any sort of judgment about, oh, is is he appropriating or is he this or that? And I realized it's because the community is, I'm sure, especially calibrated to not judge anyone in any position yeah. of feeling that out. But I appreciated that people heard echoes of things that they felt and reconciled. But there's no easy way to reply. There's no like good answer for me to yeah. give. Not that they're asking for an answer, but there is no good way to respond to. You certainly don't yeah. want to be like, <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I was kind of lying, uh, or, or just like, don't yeah. worry, I'm a, or, or to be like, huh, interesting, thank you. Like, I have to think on this. Like, both felt disingenuous, yeah, yeah. and I just was like, well, this, that's, that's certainly interesting. I have never heard that before, and now I'm hearing it more and more. You mentioned it briefly now, Leonel, that you write comedy are are you i imagine you guys still haven't had a conversation where you sat down and go like my stories are now my stories but if you want to have that conversation right now <laughs> we need both of our lawyers well i don't i think that my my large problem is that and why leah is such a wonderful partner and resource uh is that her stories and life are better and is more interesting That's than not mine. True. No, I'm, a, I'm specifically as I've gotten older, a lot of the like better habits I've formed in trying to be a specific type of person are not conducive to having, you know, the types of stories that feed like long set piece storytelling comedy. Like I don't like accidentally 
roofie myself and fall down the stairs or, or like yeah. have weird, like it happens less and less. My life is more controlled. I hang out less with people I don't like. I get myself less into situations I'm uncomfortable in. <laughs> it's hard for stand up, and not that Leah is uncontrolled, but like Leah has like a ton of friends and like is open to new situations yeah. and all these things where I'm like, well, I guess I don't get that anymore. You know, you have to take all that. I feel like uh, Mike Birbiglia, I believe this is true, has his wife write the things he says his wife says. Like, he will, when he does a show, and it's like, my wife then said, you're dumb, Mike, or whatever his wife says to him. No, that's that's right. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's... <laughs> Definitely yeah. happens at least one, which is fascinating. So she gets like a, would you ever... Like, it's like it? a final cut, kind of, where, like, he'll write his version of it, and he just is, like, letting her do a pass on her own dialogue, yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. Would you ever do that? No. No? <laughs> I mean, I, if you if you had objections, um, I, I do think I'm a good listener. I also think I'm fairer to other people's points of view. Like, my comedy is so specifically self-judgmental, and I'm so nervous about taking any position of authority over other people that, if anything, my dialogue is is the Wrong. least true. Like, yeah. rings the least true of actually how I am. I mean, I, I obviously, if you were to oppose, I would I would rather only write for Leah, I'd rather do an hour where I just like talk about what she says <laughs> in a truly reverential way, yeah. not like uh, mocking your dumb to quote one of Mike Birbiglia's famous wife lines, <laughs> you dummy. Um, if you wanted that, you you always are welcome to have that power. No, I think that's... You're okay with that? <laughs> we're fine. I think it's fine how it's going. I do think Maybe like, I'll be a stand-up though and then we'll... You know, I, I think there there has to be like a... When I'm talking about our relationship or myself or Leah, I'm talking about the stand-up version of it. I think, I don't know, maybe I'm irresponsible about audiences' ability to understand like they're getting a specific version. I think anyone that talks, that brings their life to stand-up has to deal with that. But it's like, no, this, these, are the, these are the characters of Max and Leah that you're seeing, you know, from it just because it's like you're getting the quicker, cleaner version. And the next special will have an evolved version of that. And it'll be like, we're talking about this and kids are moving at whatever. But it's always going to be the like the the slightly arm's length version. Ultimately, this idea of truth in comedy, it's important to you. It seemingly do you feel like it is just part of your life is the comedy and being truthful and being the connection to it, there is no um, to pursue it means to have your part. Your partner is your life. Your life, life is, is art, baby. Life is art. Is it like this is what you signed up for? <laughs> is it like like in a not sort of that way? But is it like a flowing state of you both as creative people are essentially in a thing of like, well, there's a transparency that is implied. I know what you mean, and I think I really disagree. I feel like there are certain people, I disagree personally, I think there are certain people that's like, look, my life is my comedy, is my life, and if you are, if we're on this ride together, like, this is going to be part of the grist in the mill, and you can... These are our wedding vows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these, uh, you can, you can object or we can talk about it, but like, my hands are tied, I'm a creator. I... I think that is um, stupid and lazy and like chauvinistic. And I feel like it's hand in hand with people that have an attitude of like, well, to be an artist requires me to like be rude a lot or like I have to be a narcissist or like, I'm sorry, like I need to, you know, go on my own and like cheat a little bit because like life <laughs> is about experiences and why won't you let my muse travel through me? I think all of that is like a horrible excuse for bad behavior in the parallel but not necessary like pursuit of 
art. I think I would always be selective and thoughtful about what in my personal life I include. And I would, um, it is just as important to me that Leah or my friends or family like and feel on board with what I'm doing as it is to be like, well, the bit's so, <laughs> look, look, what can I say, hon? It's crushing. It's crushing right now. So like my hands are tied. Like who cares? I'll write another funny bit. I mean, yeah. like uh, Rob Delaney had the, he said a long time ago and he's not the first person to say it of like not really caring when people like steal and cut and paste his retweets. Cause he's like, I'll just write more. They can't. And that's like too bad for them. They have to do that. That's sort of my attitude about, Oh, this amazing, truthful thing happened. Who, if if it makes anyone I like love feel weird, then just write a different thing, or you know. Yeah, it's some real like F. Scott Fitzgerald bullshit to be like, I must for yeah. my art. Like it's not. Yeah, yeah, you're just kind of you got into this field because you wanted to not um, be boring and follow rules, and you think that that extends to all elements of your like relationships or respect for other people. Um, and they don't go hand in hand. I think it's very, very easy to create art without being a shithead. The openness of this story and like living with it every night, it feels like as I, was, I, as I noticed that this joke represented a shift in your comedy, mm-hmm. do you feel like Leah has influenced you via this joke? Like, That's a nice question. <laughs> um, like, do you feel like you're, there's a different sort of openness and relationship to truth in this story that happens because it's, her perspective. Yes. Um, I, I think not just because it's her perspective, but I think also as my relationship with Leah has become like one of the largest things in my life and a fully open communicative thing, it's, I have, I have no self-consciousness about leaning into the full truth of stuff in our relationship. It's not like, well, I don't know if I really want to talk about, you know, the guy in the Oval Office, or I'm like nervous <laughs> about like fully committing my opinions about, you know, X, Y, like yeah. all those things. I feel like I could d- debate three different sides of them, but like Leah and my relationship are things that are the easiest to lean into fully truthfully. Like I, she's an open person and I feel like we are very open together. So it's like the easiest thing for me to just be like, I can fully write to this and go like so whole hog and not feel like I'm, being dishonest or taking some sort of straw man POV just for the sake of like getting laughs or whatever. (laughs) So that sound means it's time for the final segment of the show. It's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's a comedy, it's a laughing round. Do either or both of you have a joke joke that you like? Um, My favorite street joke I learned as a kid was um, doctor, doctor, I have five penises. Well, then how do your pants fit? Like a glove. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That was like my go-to joke until probably like fifth grade or whatever. My favorite is, um, how do you make a tissue dance? Put a little boogie in it. Is that Come what on, you were looking classes. for? Yeah. That's what you okay. Wanted, right? Exactly. Um, so in the joke, Max slightly does an impression of you. It's like a lilt. Do you have an impression of Max? Yeah. I think it would be like, system, systems. Pu- make it dark in here. I need to sleep. <laughs> Does that, that right? Like, yeah. Uh, Max, do you have an impression of yourself? Isn't that what stand-up comedy is? Doing an impression of yourself that just becomes more and more the version people want rather than the truth, truthful version? It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there a joke, Max, that if you uh, that you'd like to steal, if you're allowed to steal jokes, no one would know to steal jokes. It was your joke. It always was your joke. But essentially, you're stealing someone else's joke. John Mulaney's Leonard Bernstein joke from his recent special, um, which is about how his father coming in 
saying, you know, I was just reading this Leonard Bernstein biography and um, uh, he was gay sometimes in his life and um, he made his best work when he like held back the gay part. It's not only do I love that joke so much, but like John has covered his father a lot in his acts, has like mined a lot of great stories. And he like did that kind of offhand one night and was like, I don't think I'm going to do that again. Or like he told it Mm -hmm. off the top of his head. And I'm jealous of how rich a backstory that that suggests that you could, that could be so deep Mm -hmm. in your like, deep in your reservoir of stories about your life to draw on that you're like, maybe I won't use the thing about my father giving me a weird, like strange advice about staying in the closet or making good, like based on a biography of Leonard Bernstein, like I'm so jealous of to have that rich, you know, a life. Um, But the true joke I'd like to just fully steal is Greg Johnson's security in the basement (laughs) joke, um, which Greg Johnson, a New York comedian, he has a great album called Greg Johnson One (laughs) that you can buy, has his um, cadence has more influenced my social being, my mind. Like I still think about his punchlines all the time. I still accidentally do an impression of him constantly. It's like such a well-developed voice. And I think it really like feeds into this... You know, I went to a prep school in New England, did not like the people there, but still was a product of it. And he's this weird kind of amalgam of like, are you doing a parody of like a Boston prep bro? Or are you a Boston? Like, yeah. do you play lax or do you just make fun of lax bros? Your name is Kale. Yeah, like I truly can't figure you out. Um, and still I'm not fully sure which sure. side he's on. Um, like, uh, but his joke about going to the Wellesley Library and there being... Um, a frequently asked questions list at the front desk of the library, a pamphlet you can take. And uh, one of the frequently asked questions is security in the basement. (laughs) And just the idea that there were so many people coming into this library, just being like, "Uh, excuse me, security (laughs) in the basement (laughs) that they had to put together. They're like, we need to get a frequently asked questions (laughs) list here. This is so frequently asked. Um, I think of, the phrase security in the basement so crazy often. I have friends from college that were like acquaintances that used to come to Rafifi shows, happened to see him, that still like 15 years later will be like, do you ever see that like security in the basement guy? Like it's such, a, like it's a line that sometimes he'll do the joke and forget whole parts of it. It's almost like an abstract work now where he's just like, I was in Wellesley and there was this paper that just said, so, like he forgets whole detail. It's so good. Um, yeah, it's like his rhythm of speaking is like taking me over. I wish I could just have that joke. I wish I like was the type of concise joke writer that could just, you know, there's the like, that's Louis believes comedy is like noises and, you know, Chris Rock is repetition, whatever, like weird. I don't agree with any of that, but just the (laughs) noise of security in the basement is like so addictive that I wish I had more short. Yeah. I wish in my act, I had things that were just more like rhythmic. I have an answer too, if you want. Sure. I was thinking about it. Jesse Klein has this incredible joke about how, um, when you break up with someone like, especially if you've broken up with them, you kind of believe that they always are still playing games and like still <laughs> want you. And I mean, I'm going to ruin the joke. You, you'll, you'll know better than I will. But it's basically like he, she's still like kind of looking at his, he's married and she's sort of like, 
you you're you still want me. I'm still like the number one. But then after his second kid, she's finally like, okay, maybe you're done playing games. Like the first the first, uh, first kid, kid is still a little bit of like uh, a tactic, you know, yeah. of trying to get like what are you playing with? But yeah. then by by kid number two, it's like <laughs> it's for real. I think that joke is brilliant and very real. <laughs> You've both written for TV, and no one you don't get credits for specific jokes. This is an opportunity to claim jokes that have been on TV that you've done if you'd like i say this as a full credit to like the the, the reason it's so good and see like yeah. i had as a weird spacing out riff uh in the room in season two talking about um of big mouth talking about coach steve needing to like move from his sad storage unit apartment that he lived in um i like pitched just a line that made no sense that was just like you know, like, oh, like maybe if we go up here, like I'll be able to see the diaper barge from here. And everyone's like, what are you like? Do you say diaper barge? Like, what do you mean? I was just like, I don't know, like if, that he'd be excited to just see a barge that's carrying dirty diapers. Um, <laughs> and um, Coach Steve now lives on the diaper barge. Yeah. And like so much of it, it was like they ran with it after just that one line. Like, I'm not taking credit for all the storylines, but just it's a true. I don't know. It's like a dream fulfilled to be able to just say two words that make you feel yeah what do you mean by that and then they're like okay we'll animate that and yeah yeah and just like suddenly you know some animators downstairs is like well i think the seagulls would pick at it a little but like obviously they'd be grossed out and their stink lines or whatever Um, it's so funny and we did go out to dinner like one of those really unfortunate dinners where you're like there's eight people in last minute someone's like i'm also inviting amanda and blah 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 or whoever it is and it's like people that are strangers to most of the group and you get sit you know, stuck sitting next to those people. They're fine or whatever. But for some reason, diaper barge came up. And I just remember this woman being like, what? What's a diaper barge? And then having to sit there and watch you try to explain what a diaper barge is. (laughs) It just made me laugh so much. Uh, Last one. uh, What's a funny thing your dog has done recently? Oh, my God. I miss her. What's a funny thing she's done? She rubs her butt on the carpet every day. She... She's been, like, farting loudly. And surprising herself. Surprising herself. Like, a lot. Spooking herself. Like, looking back at her butt and then looking at us as if, like, did you put that fart in my butt? Like, she'll just be sitting there and I'll just be like, and she'll snap her head back and she's like, hey, come on. Don't sneak up on me. Don't ghost me like that. And it's like, (laughs) that came out of you. I did change her food, so that's my fault. I got a Costco membership. The end. Yay! That's it for another episode. Max Silvestri's episode of The Comedy Lineup is on Netflix. Follow Max on Twitter, at Max Silvestri. Follow Leah on Twitter, at Leah Beckman. Good One is produced by Mike Comite, with production help from Jessamine Molly. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them you'd really appreciate it. You can email me comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.